Hello, my name is Father John Jessica. I'm the pastor of the Chatham Catholic Family of Parishes. Thank you for tuning in to this first of three podcasts that were recorded live for our Becoming a Faithful Disciple conference with David Wells. This conference took place on Saturday, September 23rd, 2023 at the Spirit and Life Center, the parish hall for St. Joseph's Parish in downtown Chatham, Ontario. David Wells is a catechist, a teacher, an author, and a Catholic speaker known throughout the world. I invited him to come to Chatham to help remind us and to teach us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a missionary disciple in our world today. I truly believe that as we move forward as parishes and as uh, dioceses, uh, certainly in North America and in Canada, that we need to reignite this missionary uh, discipleship sense um, that God has given to us in a new and powerful way that we can help transform our culture and our world to be relevant, to be meaningful, to bring the joy, the healing, and the grace of Christ given to us and through our baptism strengthened in confirmation have been called to share the good news and so i know david wells uh, from my past experiences and i couldn't think of a better person to invite to ignite uh, all of us to 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 set our hearts ablaze to be faithful followers of christ in this world finding new ways and new methods to share the gospel that transforms people's hearts. I first met uh, David and got to experience his joy, his humility, and his faithfulness at a two and a half day retreat, which he led for the principals from the Huron-Perth Catholic District School Board when I was um, the pastor of St. Peter's Parish in Godrich. Then I got to meet and hear David again a couple of times over the years at the When Faith Meets Pedagogy conference in Toronto for Catholic educators. And then finally, I got to see and listen to David once again at the um, Los Angeles Education Congress, which is a huge uh, English-speaking Catholic conference hosted by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And it takes place every year in Anaheim, California. And there's over 25,000 people that come to this conference. And I, and I got to listen to David once again. Um, he has uh, a, a great sense of humor, uh, a great strong sense of faith. Um, he tells stories about his family, uh, his teaching days, and how he tries to share the gospel. And he does it with great humility. And so I invited him to come to Chatham over a year ago, and he agreed to come, not to uh, just teach us, but to really inspire us and to remind us of this call to be a disciple, this call to be a missionary, this call to be apostles in our uh, era today. Uh, and um, uh, he wrote two books that also influenced me well to, about discipleship. One uh, was called The Reluctant Disciple, and then The Grateful Disciple. And the stories uh, he shares and just the simplicity of the reminders of this great joy and this gift of faith that is given to us that we are called to share. Um, the way he does it inspires me and I know it inspired the over 160 people that gathered at the Spirit and Life Center that day. So I invite you to listen to all three keynote addresses uh, and to, uh, you know, prayerfully with an open heart uh, open mind, listen to his stories, listen to his faithfulness, listen to his passion and zeal for Christ, and how in, and how in his humble way, he reminds us um, to uh, surrender ourselves to Christ, and that we go on mission together. So I hope you enjoy. I hope he inspires you as he inspired me and all those who are in attendance that we can be true missionaries, true messengers of joy, of hope, and love in this world. God bless you, and enjoy these three podcasts. Um, you know it's humbling when people trust you, and I know he cares about you, 
and so as a result of caring about you, he's not going to ask anyone to just do this. So obviously I want to thank him um, for his trust and I want to thank you for coming. I also want to thank you for your amazing accent. Yeah. <laughs> you don't think you've got one, do you? You need to come to where I live, which is right down there in the bottom finger of England. It points to Canada. Our neighbouring diocese is Newfoundland. <laughs> and uh, because the little peninsula at the bottom there is south of Ireland. So that's where I come from. Uh, that's where I live. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I love coming to Canada. You are a warm people. You are not far away from being a stranger, many of you. Uh, which is why I'm fascinated why so many Canadians tell me that they're Scottish or they're German. And as I listen to these stories of your ancestors and the movement around this remarkable country, I become very conscious um, that you're a hospitable nation. So it's a real privilege to be a visitor here. And of course, you know, respectful and mindful uh, of the people who first settled this beautiful continent. So thank you for having me and thank you for welcoming me. And I'd like to introduce you also to my family. There they are. Oh, don't go, ah. <laughs> People say to me, oh, what a lovely family. What a lovely family, Dave. They look really lovely. I'd say, we hate each other. Uh, we, we don't really. That's just a bit of silly English humour. But, but that's Alison at the back. Her father mentioned them. And then there's Sam, Matthew and Emily. And uh, Father just reminded me that your family are very important, aren't they? They're the people, if you're lucky enough to be in a family, they're the people who root us and remind us who we are. So when we start talking about discipleship, we begin very much in the context of the people who love us most. And um, there I look at them. The very first time when I spoke at Anaheim, the Archbishop of Los Angeles sent me an email, will you come and give a seminar? I turned up with 50 handouts, because where I come from, that's what a seminar looks like. When I got there, there were 30,000 people. <laughs> I'm standing in the arena with 10,000 people in front of me. They're shining lights onto my face. I can't see anyone. It's like being on a stage in a theater. And then, because I keep my phone to hand so that I stick to time, on the lectern, a little message pops up on my phone from Sam in the white T-shirt. And it said, Dad, we're watching you. <laughs> from the other side of the world, nobody had told me that this was being live streamed. Can you imagine your own family? And do you understand now why 10,000 people in front of you pale into insignificance because... Your family are watching. And then the second text is more significant. Two or three minutes later, after listening to my introduction, the same boy, the same beginning, dad, comma. And then it said, you're an idiot. <laughs> now, I'm just telling you that because I'm going to tell you something that may make you think, why are we listening to you? I'm not holier than you. I'm not closer to God than you. I am not wiser than you. I'm not a guru. I've not come to sell you a t-shirt or a book. I've not got the answer to your pain. But what I have got is, is, the, is the gift that God gave me, which is to have the time to read what the church teaches, to reflect on it, and then to try and communicate it. It doesn't mean that I'm closer to God than you are. Now that's important because sometimes, we, in a minute, we're going to go on to talk about holiness. They're the people who decide who I am because they see me in the eyes of love. They know, and if my wife was here today, she wouldn't be looking at me admiringly. <laughs> she would be looking at me as if to say, when are you going to listen to your own talk, you hypocrite? 
So what we're about here today is a collective struggle to be an authentic follower of Christ. That's what we are. And one of the reasons I'm a Catholic is the penitential rite. It just means that when I turn up in our gatherings, I begin with an opportunity to say, Lord, I failed again. And the Lord says, it's all right. So, let's just relax. We're going to hear from a lot of people during the course of these three keynotes. I'm going to try and be very brief, cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. But they're the ones who are going to speak to you, including the cat. Cat does get to speak to you as well. Now, this is the important thing. I want you to put down any anxiety, any frustration. I'm not going to ask you to speak in front of everyone. This is not an opportunity to discover more guilt. What we're going to do during the course of this presentation is just say, just to reflect on three questions. So the first question that I'm going to explore is going to, is going to do something for us. Now, if you just take a look at these two owls for a minute, just take a look at them. With which do you most identify? <laughs> now just go with this, Canada. I call the owl on this side, same as it ever was. This is us when we say, and we have a phrase in England, we say, if it isn't broken, don't fix it, right? This is us when we rely on the past more than the future. This is us when we're used to doing things the way they are and prefer life that way. It's not bad. Sometimes it's wise, but it can cause us to become stuck. Now, this owl I call, ooh. <laughs> now, this owl is in us too. And this owl is surprised by joy. Occasionally, it's arrested by the scripture. And sometimes it goes, I hadn't seen it like that before. Now, here's the thing. It's just a thing. I want you to test it because this is your place. But I'd like to propose that the owl on the right was very alive in you when you were seven. That there's something about life that makes us rely on the way things are until they become the only way we can see. Neither of those owls are bad. We need them both. But for Pope Francis, one of his primary homilies is the risk of habit. That one day we do things just because that's the way we do things. And when that happens, it doesn't make us bad people, but it makes us afraid of change. And we become fearful. None of that makes a person bad. So, the first question that we need to begin with is, I'm going to give you, sorry, I mean, this sounds a bit arrogant. These are three primary homilies of Pope Francis. They are not unique to him. You will find these in the teachings of, of Pope Benedict, St. John Paul II, and so on. I'll show you that later. But very quickly, in this first session, just up until break, we need to rediscover who is reaching out to us. Now, at first, that sounds a bit daft, but I just want you to move from that owl, if you can, to that owl. Is that all right? That's all I'm going to ask you to do. The only other thing I'm going to ask you to do before break is I will ask you to talk to the person next to you briefly. And so if you don't like the person sitting next to you, there will be an opportunity to move. <laughs> So, here comes Pope Francis's contention. I want you to reflect upon this because we find this in the life of the saints. Just see what you make of it. This morning, we walked in here with a metaphorical bag. Now, I'm going to propose that the bag 
is all the things we worry about, all the things we think we should have been doing today, the things you didn't do this morning, even walking in here this morning thinking, I hope this is worth it. I hope this is worth it. I hope he's as good as Father said he was. Because we've walked in here with lives full of stuff. They might be the people we love. They might be the lawn that needs cutting. But we've arrived here this morning with distraction. That's human. It's not bad. But actually, I'm going to propose that there's a problem. And if it's not in you, it's definitely in your younger people, like our communities. And it works a bit like this. We haven't brought one bag in here. We've brought those bags in here, you see, because people are burdened. What's happened for Pope Francis is that the, the enemy for us, strangely, isn't atheism. The enemy is busyness. Everybody's so busy. And when you become busy, you stop reflecting. You just do. So that one day you wake in a world that doesn't look like that. It looks like that. So you invite people to meetings and they don't come. And they don't come not because they're bad people. And they don't come not because they don't believe. They don't come because their lives look like that. Now, the interesting thing is how this plays out. We were just having a chat over on this table a bit earlier. I'm doing a talk like this. And then one day this lady comes up to me. Amazing thing about being a speaker is that people come and tell you their stories. So this lady came up to me. Amazing. She came up to me. You never know what people are going to say. And she walked up a little bit abruptly and was too close. You have to remember I'm British. All right, we don't do emotion and we don't do proximity. She's right there. And she said, I've been listening to you. And I said, thank you very much. She said, no, it's not good. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry to hear that. And then I never knew where this was going. She said, my husband. I said, oh, tell me about your husband. She said, he's retiring this summer. No, I'm... I don't know why she'd gone there. So I just said to her, you must be delighted. <laughs> if, if you don't know, experience is causing people to laugh. And here's the thing. I looked at her with a bit of incredulity because I thought, surely that's something to celebrate. A lifetime of work coming to an end. Congratulations. She looked at me and she said this, very interesting. She said, what, David, am I supposed to do with him? Now, I'm going to play that back to you. They've lived a life of love for 35 years. She has no idea who he is without his job. And she's frightened of his boredom. Because we lived in a life that told us that that is what life should look like. And then we hold meetings and run courses and pray for the future. And people don't come. It's not because they're bad. It's not because they don't believe. It's because the head space is full of stuff. We think that's what success looks like. And we're even battling this with the church in England because we, you know, we meet priests and lay people who think that a successful parish is a busy parish. And you go, busy? Busy? Is that what we need? The other reason people don't want to come to meetings is they think they're going to get a job. <laughs> you walk through the door and somebody's going to give you a job. I don't want another job. I've just spent 35 years trying to get rid of the last one. So we go to bed and we worry about the thing we forgot. And we lie in bed and we go, did I ring her? I said I'd ring her. Did I ring her? I'm sure I said I'd ring her. Did I ring her? And so what happens is we carry on living life one day at a time, getting our lists done. But actually, inside us, we've deflated. We're not bad people. We're good people. But for Pope Francis, the risk is that we lose our joy. It's not that you lose your faith. You lose your joy. And then one day you go to meetings, and they're just a bit depressing. Not because people are bad, but because it's all about problems all the time. You know, where are the young people? Why are we dying? What are we going to do about the parishes? What about the buildings? And, you know, little by little, we lose our joy. Now, here's the thing. We have lots of references in the scripture to this. It's a lovely story in Mark's gospel about the, the 
the disciples. And there's this great line at the beginning of the story. You know the story and you know it well. Jesus is going to appear to them on the lake. But at the beginning of the story, this is beautiful. They're straining against the oars. This is you straining against your life to get your list done. Have we got any list writers in the room? Oh, not many. That's interesting. Where I come from, everybody writes lists. My wife puts things on the list she's already done just so she can cross it out. <laughs> now look at the scriptures. The risk isn't getting your faith. The risk's losing it. Look at this. You're the salt of the earth. But what if it loses its taste? What if it loses its taste? Do you know what it'll do? It'll carry on being salt. That's what it'll do. Working hard, being reliable, turning up, doing your duty. But slowly, unconsciously, little by little, we lose our joy. You can lose what you have. It's in all the Gospels. And it doesn't make you bad. And it's not sending you to hell but you might lose your joy. So in this first session, what does Pope Francis remind us? In John chapter 10, verse 10, here's a piece of scripture that you probably know and know it well. It's a lovely line that's often quoted in youth ministry. And we hear it often. It says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Ah, oh, I'd like that. Life to the full. Give me that. Lord, let me drink from that well. Oh, oh, life to the full. The irony is that that's not the whole of John chapter 10, verse 10. It's the bit we like. Here's the whole of John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, do you mind just for a second? What's that about? The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. In the scriptures, the thief is always coming in the night. You know that, don't you? It's a metaphor. It means you don't know you're being robbed. If you get mugged, you get mugged in the daylight. If you get burgled in the scriptures, the thief is coming after your joy. You're not going to know it. You're going to be asleep. But that's not the point. Here's the interesting thing for me. Notice the language of Pope Francis in his documents. Don't be robbed of your joy. Notice the language. Notice the language. Don't be robbed of your joy. He does this consistently through his various encyclicals. Don't be robbed of your hope. Do you notice this language? Don't be robbed of the idea that we are brothers and sisters, not parishioners. Excuse me. We're brothers and sisters. We're a family. I love this idea of the family of parishes. Pope Francis wants you to see yourselves as a family, not a collection of people who worship in a particular building. You see, you can lose the buildings. You can lose them all. You don't lose your family. You get the priority right. You can lose your infrastructure. You don't lose your brothers and sisters. That's what he wants. Don't be robbed. Here he comes. Of course, one thing is to let oneself be overcome by pessimism and distrust. Pessimistic Christians, how awful he says, a young person without joy and without hope is upsetting because they're not young. Have you ever thought about that? Did you know you were born joyful? Did you know you were joyful when you were a baby? Well, sorry, you were. I don't know if they forgot to tell you. The interesting thing about in the teaching of the church is joy is one of those things that doesn't age. Inside you're still young, you know that, don't you? Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we had a chat at Christmas about this with the family. I mean, do have this chat. Go to Tim Hortons. Did you notice that a reference, Canadian reference? Get yourself to a bar or a pub and have a chat with people you love about how old you really are. I think I'm 28 and a half. I'm 61, but I, th I think I'm 28 and a half. I always thought when I got this age, I'd be kind of mature and secure and wise. None of that happened. 
I'm still 28. I'm still scared. So look, I'm just saying, none of this makes a person bad. But why does it matter in the hall today? Because later we're going to go on to take on to some serious issues. But the first issue is, how are we? Like, it doesn't matter what plan we come up with. The real issue is, how are we? Because until we're well, there isn't a plan going to work. It doesn't make anybody bad, but it looks a bit more like this. Now, welcome to Grumpy Cat. If any of you enjoyed social media during COVID, this cat went viral. But here's the thing. Here comes Pope Francis from Evangelii Gaudium, Article 80, uh, 83. And he says, one of the more serious temptations which stifles boldness and zeal is a defeatism which turns us into querulous and disillusioned pessimists and sourpusses. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in 2,000 years, the word sourpuss appears in Catholic doctrine. <laughs> now, I, I was fortunate. When this document was promulgated, it was Pope Francis's first encyclical, and when it was promulgated, I was in Rome in a conference of people from all over the world. Not many of us, there were about 40. And I said, can you just turn to that article? And everybody flipped through their pages. They were reading it for the first time, and we got to Article 83, and in there, I said, do you mind just telling me in your language, how is sourpuss translated? Because where I grew up, we used that word, but do they use it in Canada? Sourpuss? So we were going round the room going, what is that word? They were all predictable until we got to the Spanish. Now get ready for this, sorry. With apologies to the Spanish speakers. In the Spanish translation, the word sourpuss appears as two words, vinegar face. Now, can I just, now look, please take this in the right spirit. It's not a criticism. You will make nothing work if you're wearing vinegar face. Nobody's going to be attracted to that. It doesn't matter what plan you come up with. Vinegar face doesn't work. So in his very first encyclical, what does he call it? The joy of the gospel needs to be recovered. That's his first homily. Without joy, with vinegar. Doesn't make people bad. It's not sending anybody to hell. Please don't be sitting here thinking, gosh, I thought I had to work hard. Now I've got to work hard and be happy about it. <laughs> Ten symptoms that you might be shrinking into joylessness. Just have a little look at these. Take them with the right spirit, but just have a little look at these, would you? Number one, you're irritated by other people's enthusiasm and cheerfulness. Does anybody here know a really cheerful person? And do they ever irritate you? Or how about this? You're disappointed when you realise there's a baptism at Sunday Mass. <laughs> I'm watching. Do you know what I love about that? Was that like my sons, like by the time Sam was seven, we'd pull up at church on a Sunday and he'd be going, oh no. And I'd go, what's the matter? And he'd say, there are people in suits. Now where I come from, that means there's people coming for a baptism and he knew that meant it would be longer. You sit in the same pew every week. I'm sure that doesn't happen here. Uh, you genuflect in cinemas, lecture theatres, and anywhere where seats are arranged in line. <laughs> Has anybody here ever genuflected in a cinema? <laughs> Just me, then. Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, 1987. Lethal Weapon 2. Genuflected in the cinema. Three people laughed. They were the Catholics. <laughs> Somebody says, have a nice day, and you reply, and with your spirit. <laughs> now, I've done it. I've done it. You get impatient if somebody's invited to make a charity appeal before the final blessing. Now, where I come from, you can hear people going, give them the money. Just give them the money. I want to go. Give them the money. 
You drive too fast, and when you arrive home, you sit in your car reading your phone messages. <laughs> and although you've just received the body of Christ, you'll kill anybody who blocks your car in the parking lot. So what am I offering? I'm offering a proposition, and the proposition is this. Before you start making any plans, we need to do a homework. And the homework is, how are you, really? Now, don't be afraid of that question. It's a question that Jesus continually asks in the Scriptures. And he's asking it to us now. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. We have all the wealth we need in this room to be the people of God. Joyfully. My problem is that I can give this talk and then do the opposite. I don't want to be vinegar. The risk then for Pope Francis is not atheism or Islam or other inclinations or capitalism or materialism it's not bad people in inverted commerce the risk is us becoming small-minded rooted in the only thing we know and not daring daring to tilt our heads when i do that i can do that i become small supposing we trapped ourselves inside a world that's of our making it's just a question Supposing one day we trapped ourselves inside a box that was of our own making. That's the risk. I have come, says the Lord, that you may have life and have it in abundance. So, just very briefly, here are four temptations from Pope Francis. They're paraphrased, they're not quotes. I'm just going to give them to you. I want you to see, do you recognize yourself or the people you love in any of the four? Are you ready? Number one, coping. The relentless demands have eroded my enthusiasm, so I just live my day life one day at a time. The relentless demands have eroded my enthusiasm, so I just live my life one day at a time. Number two, I've been let down so many times that I prefer to just get things done myself. This is you when you say, if you want a job doing well, do it yourself. Number three, I've developed a very high expectation of myself and I spend too much time worrying. I've developed a very high expectation of myself and I spend too much time worrying. And lastly, I'm convinced that nothing really works anymore, so I get some pleasure in pointing out the fault in everything. The cynics. Have you met any cynics? Well, if you come back home with me, I'll introduce you to a few. <laughs> Oscar Wilde said, a cynic is somebody who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Your own Ronald Rollheiser wrote, a cynic is somebody who's given up but hasn't shut up. Cynics normally make friends with each other. They form small holy huddles of the like-minded. They often have their meetings at the back of cars after the meeting. They're good people. They're not bad people. But they're inclined and often look the same. Now, all of those four are very real and alive inside and outside of the church. Here's something I want you to do. Just for a couple of minutes, just for a couple of minutes, just with the person next to you, very briefly, all I want you to do is to say, do you recognize any of those in yourself or the people that you love? Now, this is a penitential rite, okay? It doesn't make anybody bad. You're not going to hell. Do it with a sense of humor. You're allowed to have two. I'm not going to let you have all four. And you can pick any two that are your inclinations. Now, you might say to the person next to you, I don't suffer from any of those. But you'll find that the person next to you does. So find out what they are. You've got two minutes. Have a quick chat with each other. Just a brief conversation. Thank you for that. Now, if you didn't enjoy that conversation, just the next time, just look the other way. Look the other way. Now, now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, this won't take long. We're about 15 minutes away from our first break. So, 
Whoa, thank you for talking to each other. Don't worry if you don't recognize yourself on there, but certainly be sensitive to the fact that a lot of fear comes from those bubbles. So when we start talking about change, those are the things that push back. So quite often it doesn't make bad people, but when you're used to life in a particular pattern and somebody suggests that possibly the problem is the pattern, that is very disorientating. For a brief while you say, well, was I always wrong then? And you go, no, no, but I'm going to propose something else. So the problem with those four is that they discourage us. That's what they do. They don't make you bad. They don't make you bad. In the words of St. Augustine, or sorry, paraphrasing St. Augustine, they discourage us. They make us ill. They make us resistant to each other, an inclination to look inwards and to become stuck. Pope Francis describes the consequences as becoming a mummy in a museum. Become stuck or paralysed. Doesn't make you bad. So, these things start to kick in. Just have a little look at them. David Wells comes from England. He doesn't know more than you. He's not holier than you. But he starts talking about discipleship. And the resistance to discipleship isn't intellectual. It's emotional. And it's an awful lot of that. So you go, well, I didn't grow up being told I was a disciple. I grew up being told I was a Catholic. And, um, and I know how to be a Catholic because I go to Mass. And you go, no, and that's all really beautiful. But if I start saying to you, do you know you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? That is a lot of the reaction in my culture. In England, we're scared of it. And we're not scared of it because we're bad people. We're scared of it because it's not how we grew up. People didn't talk about being missionary disciples. They talked about being practicing Catholics. It's a different language. It's a different language. It doesn't mean it was wrong. But we now have, for the last since the Second Vatican Council, we've had five popes talk about missionary discipleship, not just Francis. And we go, well, I did, that wasn't around when I was a kid. They used to talk to me, Mom. I said, how did you grow in faith? She said, well, we had what we called penny catechism. Did you have a penny catechism, short, small catechism? Some of you, okay. She said, that, you know, phrases like missionary discipleship weren't in there. So what happens? Well, n notice what happens to the great biblical heroes. Do you, have, you, have you ever reflected on this? When God calls the great heroes of our Bible, we know the responses, don't we? You know the responses. Or for Moses, uh, they won't believe me. What will I say? I'm not a good speaker. Send somebody else. Have you ever come across that reaction? You know, when Father asks for help? Uh, how about Gideon? Uh, I'm the least thought of in my family, and prove it's you anyway. Or uh, how about Thomas? One evident. Or how about Jonah? Or how about Ananias? Or how about Ezekiel? Or how about the rich young man? Or how about Zechariah? Or how about Jeremiah? My favourite is Isaiah, oh sorry, Timothy of course. Or how about this? I love this. Leave me, I'm a sinful man. I'm not good enough to be a disciple of Jesus Christ because I'm still a sinner. And then of course, probably my second favourite is this, Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah's excuses? Oh, they're gorgeous. Uh, I'm not the right person and I have a foul mouth. <laughs> now, how many excuses do you need before you discover by the way, that nobody, nobody, nobody is worthy. Neither our biblical heroes, our saints, or anyone. And as soon as you think you're ready and holy, you're probably not. Because, of course, the only person who's presented to us as the person who responds purely and correctly is Mary, which is why she gets the description of the church as the turning point in history. Because her yes is pondered in wisdom. Mary is the preeminent disciple. Why? Because her yes came from the heart. No excuses. She's going to ponder, reflect and surrender. That's your life. Ponder, reflect and give up the fight to not be a disciple. <laughs> I love that. 
So, what does Pope Francis do? We've got 10 minutes till, till the break. What does he do? He says, the answer is not lying in your own strength. I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus. Look, before we start doing anything, we need to get into this. Like, what is that? How does it work? And how do I enter into that space in which I encounter? It's not the same as knowing. It's not the same as knowing. It's encountering. This is Francesco Baturi, who said, Encounter is primary knowledge. It's the knowledge of the heart. Jesus becomes encounter incarnate to be met rather than understood. To be met rather than understood. To be met rather than understood. You do know, don't you, that the disciples became disciples before they knew anything. They become disciples at the beginning of the story, not at the end of the story. He sends them out as disciples, knowing that they'll mess up. Now, I'm pleased about that, because if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't be here. Because you don't know how little I know. Holiness, get this. In Gaudati et Exaltate, you delight that. In Gaudati et Exaltate, Pope Francis says, Holiness is an encounter between your weakness and the power of God's grace. Anything that comes next has to begin there. You have to begin with the fact that you're loved, you're amazing, and until you can accept that about yourself, you're going to be paralysed. I don't mean physically, of course. All too often, writes Pope Francis, this is in his beautiful letter about, he wrote this about St. Joseph. It's a gorgeous letter. But in it he said, all too often we think that God works only through our better parts, yet most of his plans are realised in and despite our frailty. Most of his plans are realised not in your gifts and talents, but in your very vulnerability. Imagine that. God is going to use you through your weakness. Now, can I just be clear about that? No other training exists on the planet that's like that. Every other training that you will have ever experienced was all about until you know and until you understand and until you can do, you can't. That's not God's grace. God's grace is, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you before you even knew me. And I don't love you more now than I did then. And nothing you can do is going to make me love you more. Nothing you can do is going to make me love you more than I already do. Now please, be a disciple. Which is why I'm going to finish with the story, if you don't mind. I've got four minutes to go. I'm sticking to time, because I do know, I do know you like your coffee in this country, don't you? You do like your coffee. So I'm going to give you a stupid illustration. It's just a short story, and then we're going to have a break. I'm going to leave you with a question just to have during the break. I'd been teaching. Sorry, where's our lovely deacon from Liverpool? So, oh, thank you. So Liverpool is an amazing city. If you've never been there, put it on your bucket list. But in 1984, I started my teaching career there in a large school called Shawfields Comprehensive in a district of Liverpool at the top of what the Beatles sang about in Penny Lane. And at the top of that lane is Toxteth. And in Toxteth, I was teaching in a school. It was a tough school. And after three weeks of teaching in that school, I'd taken in their books, their assignments. And I'd been told by the more experienced teachers that you get nothing out of this class. It was a class of 14-year-olds. They were difficult young people, not motivated, neither they nor their parents. And I was in front of them trying to teach them Luke's gospel. Can you imagine? Most of them had never been seen near a church since the day they were baptised. I'm standing in front of this group of young people and I realised I'd taken their books in, I'd taken them home and I'd marked their assignments and they'd done the work. It wasn't brilliant, but it would, they'd done it. And I'd been told by the lead principal in the school, you'll have a problem with that class. He said, but don't worry, nobody can teach them. I thought, well, that's, that's okay. He was a good man, but he was tired. And so at home, I thought, I can do this job. I am a teacher. I can do this job. So I went into the class with a little bit of a speech ready. Do you mind if I give you the speech? 
thank you very much. So I gave them this, I was going to, I was going to go into the classroom and I was going to say, now look, there are people out there who don't believe you can do this, but I want to tell you something. If you let me teach you, I promise you that you and I will go through doors that nobody even knew were there. Trust me and we'll have an adventure. That was my speech, except that when I got to the classroom, I realized I'd left their books in the staff room. I'd got to the classroom, your work really matters, but I'd forgotten it, see it doesn't work. So I said something to them that changed my life. It did. I said to them, I am gonna be out of this room for two minutes. If any of you so much as breathes while I'm out the room, you're dead. <laughs> I said, I'll lose my job, but you'll be dead. <laughs> this was religious studies, by the way. <laughs> I ran down that flight of stairs so fast. You have to understand, I'm not much older than them. I was 23. My mouth is dry. My hands are sweating. I still don't know who I am. I get to the staff room. I pick up their books and run back to that classroom because I know their potential for chaos. I get to the classroom door. Anybody in the room who's a teacher will know this. You open the door very slightly through the frosted glass to make out have they obeyed you. And in that corridor, and I'm not exaggerating, I heard total and absolute chaos. I don't mean it was a bit lively in there. They were all chatting. I mean, it was like Lord of the Flies in there. <laughs> and this is when I get holy, you see, because when I don't know what to do, I lean on the Lord who made me. And I'm in that corridor and I said, Lord, I think you want me to be a teacher. But I don't know how. And these young people, they need you more than they know. And I don't want to be a fool. So help me or show me that this is not your plan for me. So I'm now going to shout for anybody of a nervous disposition, but I am going to wipe my lips. Do you remember teachers who didn't wipe their lips? <laughs> the reason I'm wiping my lips is entirely for Jan. Otherwise you get spat at. So I went for it. <laughs> and by the way, I really kicked that door. The door swung open, boom, hit a desk and slammed shut again. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is true. I went bounding in there and I did my, I've been practicing this at home. I went, now look! I said it was really good. I had all the veins out on my neck, pedestals on my eyes. And then I, I did the, the gesture. I trusted you! Two minutes! Bits of paper in the room did this. As they let go of each other, right? And they froze, and I froze, because at this moment I realised that this wasn't, in fact, my classroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is true. Do you, do you know, have you ever suffered from shock? Because... The brilliant thing about shock is you get total recall. It was only after that experience that I remembered that in my peripheral vision, there was, in fact, at the front of that classroom, a teacher. <laughs> I remember thinking, what? The poor man. The poor man. What, what does he do every day? Every day. Every day. He's, no, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Right. This is 1984, 83. And this was the era, forgive me, I think it was well televised over here, but it was the era of faulty towers. And I don't know whether anybody remembers John Cleese, but I just did John Cleese. I had no idea. I, do, I wasn't doing Jesus Christ. I, I was doing John Cleese. I just went, sorry, wrong room. I, say, so, so now, now I'm in the corridor. You know, kind of at this point, atheism is quite attractive, really. Because, and then going, Lord, 
you know, like I put my faith in you. I stepped out in faith. I, you know, I'm trying to reach out. I, t- I, th- I thought I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I go, all that had happened, all that had happened is I'd run, run up one flight of stairs too many in my haste. I go down the stairs. I go along the corridor. My classroom was underneath the one I'd just burst into. I go into the classroom. I pay no attention to them. I sit down and I said in a moment of utter vulnerability, you won't believe what I've just done. Now, I have no idea what those young people were up to, but when I lifted up my gaze, they'd gone quiet, and one of them at the back said, What did you do, sir? Sir, what did you do? And I told them the story I've just told you, and they laughed. They thought it was hilarious, but then something else happened. After the laughter, it went quiet. But this wasn't the quiet that shouting commands. This was a different quiet. Because we had just met each other. Now, I didn't hear these words, but I'm going to tell you what I intuited. I felt the Lord was saying to me, David, I love you. I want you to be a teacher. But I don't want you to teach about me. I want you to teach with me. I want us to do it together. And you're going to have to be a fool. Because all my disciples are fools. St. Paul, I'll be a fool for Christ. Just don't make me a fool for anything else. So, folks, here we go. What stops us from relying on the power of God and saying yes to discipleship? When we don't understand it, don't know what it is, and don't know what it means, we still get asked anyway. So during this break, please keep that question in mind and have a chat with each other while we enjoy this break. We'll be back in about 20 minutes. Okay.